Hi everyone, well welcome to the second episode of the Silmarillion Sessions as we're calling them, as slightly awful as that name might be and cringe inducing, but anyway, it, it goes okay. So I'm here with Shrita, so say hello Shrita, say hello to, I don't know, our guests. <laughs> hey there, how's it going? <laughs> This is not this this is this is not as much like a hostage uh, podcast as it's sounding like already. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So, Shrita, you were you've become famous um, because, as we were just talking about before the podcast, you wrote an article about the Ukraine war that's currently going on, uh, which seems to have got some traction. So, uh, for those listeners who are interested, you can find that on Aereo Magazine, um, and it's a great article. So, I'd recommend people read it and. Yeah. Um, oh, thank if you. People are listening to. That's, that's too kind. <laughs> if people like what you've written, um, yeah, come and come and uh, you know you can come to listen to the, the podcast and um, hear more of what Shreda has to say here. So, um, although you know, for the most part, we don't talk about Ukraine or current events, but who knows? We might, you know, we might do that at some point. Yeah. So today we should do a we should do a whole episode where we compare yeah, oh compare you know different different wars. Well, in the history of it's interesting Earth, actually. I have seen some comparisons, like um, you know, as, as Putin as, as as you know the the Dark Lord sort of thing, and um, you know uh, Ukraine as as, uh, as sort of the embattled West. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess there's <laughs> yeah definitely parallels to be drawn there. I think I see the inklings of your next area essay. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Um, no, I think my days of trying to write for publications are over. But anyway, or at least non-academic ones. <laughs> Takes t- too much, too much effort, too much time, too much. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. It's just me. Um, so today, at any rate, we're talking about chapters uh, one to four of the Silmarillion inclusive. Um, and so these are, you know, um, the beginning of days, um, chapter one, Aule and Yuvana, chapter two, um, and then chapter three, coming of the elves, and uh, chapter four is, uh, what's chapter four again? Oh, Thingol and Melian. Yes, that's right. The, um, the very briefly told love story <laughs> in that chapter. So uh, we just wanted to spend one episode on, on these chapters because they're all relatively short and um, we can sort of take them as, as sort of chunks. So we'll probably go, we'll probably do that going forward um, until we get to some of the, the very long chapters towards the end, of course, the, the um, Baron and Luthien and some of the, some of the, some of those later chapters. So, uh, which, which are sort of more self, self-contained stories. So um that's the plan anyway so we're just going to have a you know a free-ranging kind of discussion um i didn't didn't write many notes for this so (laughs) we'll see how we go but you know i think there's some interesting material to think about but um you know i guess first of all um what were your thoughts on on these chapters obviously um you know we really begin i suppose that the story of the silmarils here as as per the the title um we have the creation of first the lamps and then the two trees and and then, of course, the Silmarils. And I think what's really interesting is, um, as many sort of scholars have pointed out, we sort of were faced with a gradual diminution of of of, of, uh, of light, and, and by sort of symbolic extension, um, you know, truth, beauty, um, symmetry, perfection, whatever you want to call it, and, and sort of the, the gradual um, 
don't know how how to explain it. I guess the, the gradual disintegration of, of that sort of primal, um, sort of singular, um, singular creative power, which which you know is 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 dispersed gradually, um, both by sort of the by Melkor, the the sort of Satan figure, but also um, you know as as a result almost of entropy as well, which I think I think is the main sort of theme of the book. The whole Tolkien's legendarium. So you know, we, we really see that um, process begin here, but um, at least mythologically. So, yeah, initial thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to the um, to to that point, I, I think it's interesting that the the um, you know after after the the it, it seems like there was a there's a, a, a peak of light reached mm. that you know though 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 there may be like valleys and then and then hills again that you know the, each subsequent peak is is less um mm. if that makes mm. sense I, I find that like an interesting kind of um, or at least that's my interpretation of it so mm. yeah um, yeah i could be wrong on that but that that's like an interesting thing it's not it's not like a it's not like a you know linear decline necessarily um but yeah, no, yeah, or, yeah. Or is it? No, I think that's right. That's right to sort of think about that because I think um, it seems to, that perhaps we can read it several ways as a kind of decline. But then you could also take the if if you take the um, sort of theodicy seriously, the idea that you know discord and disharmony sort of somehow works to create more beauty, you know, out of the, out of tension, I suppose, um, then one could argue that, well, actually that original sort of unity sort of symbolized by the, the, these, these lamps, I guess. Um, and then of course, by the two trees more famously, perhaps, um, you know, one could say that I suppose that although it was sort of symmetrical and perfect and, there was something missing in, in that sort of um, there's something beautiful in, in sort of perhaps the symmetry, but also the the breaking of, of, of symmetry as, as well in a, in a different kind of sense. So I think one could take it both ways. And something I noted in reading this time was, you know, one question I had was whether or not in the book as a whole, but especially in these chapters, we can think about, um, you know, whether, whether there's a contradiction between this notion that the world was originally primarily perfect and, and beautiful and the notion, as I've just explained, that sort of evil, if you like, or um, somehow the, the forces of disunity, um, the idea that this creates more beautiful things, if there's a contradiction there. Um, you know, if one can have the beauty, the, that singular original beauty without without the, the discord of Melkor or, you know, more abstractly without without the sort of reality of entropy and the, the, the sort of, you know, the reality of things dissolving and and, and, and um, passing away, then why is it necessary in the first place to, you know, to, to actually have, have Melkor, is that where introduced as a kind of principle into the universe, that principle of discord? Um, does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, it does, and I, you know, I think this may be obvious, but I, I think Token kind of um, does a smaller version of that between between the elves and and and, and men. Yeah, uh, and, and I think 
my hunch is that he answers that question for us by by saying that the that the discord is um is part of the beauty because he seems to uh, it, it seems to me that the token slightly favors uh, the the man so um <laughs> mm, well mm. Not in that sense. Yeah, clip it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got, we got our soundbite. Um, I also favor the men. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Terrible. Um, yeah. We should, we, should, we should clip that and, uh, you know, use it to piss off all the people on Reddit. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that, that question that you have, that, that's like a, a, a bigger version of the question of, of, um, you know, the, the role of, you know, mortality and, and the sort of ability to be corrupted between, between elves and men mm. and, um, and what, what their worth or what their role in the universe is. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe I don't, maybe it's not fair to say that he favors one over the other, but it seems to me that, that certainly men are obviously crucial in, in their role here mm-hmm. as being more sort of like, um, figures who are subject to entropy. So mm. I don't know, it seems like he, he answers that, that question, um, you know, with, with his, with his own creations. Yeah. Although I think the elves are too, um, just in a different way, perhaps because they themselves don't obviously die, but, um, but the world around them does. So um, they're, they're faced with a sort of a, a different dilemma in that sense. Um, which of course brings around, um, brings the rings, uh, into the, into the story originally, um, or sorry, eventually is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's that's an interesting sort of dilemma, maybe that the first these first few chapters introduce because we have the creation of these these major symbolic, mythological um, sort of instantiations of of that sort of primal, creative, beautiful, you know, however you want to describe it, um, sort of light. Sim, sim, you know, symbolized here by, by light, of course, and and then that's successively sort of broken up into smaller pieces, and eventually into the Silmarils themselves, these jewels which embody that light, and then sort of maintain that memory into history, as it were. But uh, but but that original primal light can never sort of be re-accessed. You can, you can't sort of go back there and access it again. And eventually, in the myth, and we'll get to this, I suppose, when we get to the chapter on the sun and moon. Eventually, we're left with the sun and moon, which are in in the mythological frame, sort of imperfect um, records of, of that original primal light. So, um, you know, it's interesting how that sort of um, cascades down from you know from from the from the terrestrial plane and eventually into a sort of inaccessible into the inaccessible plane of the sky. Um, but in these chapters, any, at any rate, we, we just get to the point where, um, where the two trees are made and, um, we haven't lost them yet, of course, but the, the two trees are, are made, the, the lamps are lost on the first page or the second page. <laughs> and, um, so, so that primal, that primal light doesn't, of course, um, doesn't, of course, stick around for very long. We immediately get into the story and, um, this, of course, results in the, the capture and chaining of Melkor. Then the elves come into the scene and they are these creations, I suppose, that the Valar um, know about, but they don't really have any sense of how to deal with these 
um, you know, the, these new sort of speaking creatures. And then um, there's uncertainty about how to treat them, what to do. And eventually, of course, they invite these elves to um, to Valinor, their, their sort of parad- paradisical home. And um, that sort of brings about a whole lot of consequences for the rest of the history of this particular world, um, which, you know, one could sort of argue over as to whether or not sort of triumphant history or not. Um, but it's certainly a dramatic one. And so really, I suppose um, that history begins in a sense, at least for the elves and the men in that decision to uh, bring the elves to, to, to paradise and to, to ask them to forsake their original homes and therefore to become sort of exiles. Um, I, I don't know. What, what did you think about that particular um, theme? I mean, obviously, even the book makes a note of, of, um, of saying that I can find it here. Um, uh, it makes a note of, of saying that um, from, from this summons um, came many woes that befell or that afterwards befell in, in the um, in chapter uh, three, I think it is, um, of the coming of the elves. So, you know, clearly, clearly, we're meant to, I suppose, approach this whole um, development with some degree of apprehension. Hmm. And I, th- th- this is one of the uh, the things that I wasn't mm-hmm. quite clear on. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I, if I, if I missed it, maybe, maybe that's why. But, but, um, but. Why? Why exactly is this a? Is this a, Is why exactly is this a problematic decision? Is what I don't. Is, is I guess what I don't understand. Mm. I suppose it depends on your point of view. But one answer is that it's problematic because it it immediately removes the the elves from you know from this from their homeland, I suppose, from, from the, the place where they, they awake in this mythological kind of uh, setting. And, um, yes, they're transported to paradise. Yes, they become sort of ennobled and enriched by this. But, <clears throat> sorry, um, but in the process they lose something. You know, they lose um, a place, I guess, um they lose their place in, in Middle Earth. And, you know, there are some later texts which even even give a somewhat more, one might say, Marxist reading of this, which is that, you know, the elves felt that they had lost their places at sort of the top of the hierarchy. And in Valinor, they're at the, 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 um, the bottom of the hierarchy because, of course, they're literally living amongst the gods. So, you know, um, in comparison, in, in, in Paradise, they're, they're sort of... Um, the lowest rung sort of thing. I mean, not that that, you know, presumably not that that means anything really for their lifestyles or anything, but at least in Middle Earth, they they were able to sort of exercise some degree of control and dominion over their environment, um, which is exactly why later in the story we will see several elves return to Middle Earth. But um, um, so so I think I think that's why, because... because Although it seems at first glance that it might be a, I guess a positive, um, a positive move, it, it sort of it has a result of 
of uh, dis- well, yeah, deracinating the elves, I guess, for, from their original homeland, mm-hmm. and therefore creating all sorts of, um, you know, let's say <laughs> unresolved psychological issues, which <laughs> certain of them later, um, yeah, take up, um, yeah, in, in their in their rebellion against the Vela. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That, that's, that's the answer I give. Yeah. So it's more of a. I may have been. I may have been doing too, too maybe maybe too literal of a, of a reading or something. So it's more. It's more. <laughs> um, it's more pinpointing this as the as the sort of like you said the beginning of history moment, mm, but mm. only from the point of only from the point of knowing what is to come. Mm. It's not that in that. It's not that in that moment that was an obviously mm-hmm. um, faulted decision. Correct. Mm, yeah or that's no. right yeah yeah so, yeah it's, it's only it's only from the perspective of mm-hmm. i guess hindsight that, that yes and 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 that it's and yeah. something we'll see i think as we go forward is this, this book is written you know in hindsight obviously i mean it, it is a sort of sure sure it is a, well i take it as a mythological retelling if you like of, of certain historical events i mean this is a big a big debate which i've talked about several of my guests with you know how literally does one take Silmarillion within the context of this story world? And I think that's actually a really interesting question because, you know, when we read a novel, we sort of expect that the world that we're being, being invited to observe, in a sense, is, is, is in some sense instantiated in a kind of story world which is real. But, you know, do we think the same mythological texts perhaps function a bit differently are we are we necessarily being invited to imagine that the elves were literally dragged across the ocean on a on an island by a giant god <laughs> or that the sun and moon are literally the fruits of the two trees you know if we take for example the world of the lord of the rings which seems to us quite uh, to 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 obtain a, a degree of verisimilitude comparable to a novel, the kind of verisimilitude you might you might encounter in a, in a novel, um, do we then turn to the Silmarillion and say, well, um, although there are complications there as well, but I won't go into that, but do we then turn to the Silmarillion and say, well, there, there's an equal degree of verisimilitude. You just have to sort of, um, you know, while you're reading the text, you, you just enter into a kind of secondary belief and, and everything sort of transpires as it's said. But as I've spoken with several scholars on this podcast, you know, one can detect, of course, certain elements of bias in the narrative. One can detect, as you've just noticed there, that it's told from not only hindsight, but probably quite a gulf of time, you know, is, is, has, has passed between, say, the, you know, in inverted commas, the writing of the text, <laughs> you know, in the story world and, um, and the actual, again, inverted commas, actual events that are taking place. It's almost like an omniscient hindsight, you know. Well, it, it, it's not, it thinks it is. Yes, it's not merely like it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not. It's not merely historical hindsight. It's yes, yes, yeah. It's you know not only like we know how it happened, but like we know how you know how just you know how yeah we we know the whole thing. Mm, <laughs> mm, mm. It's it's all it's it's more or less yeah yeah yeah. But but then there are but, features of the text which sort of give away its status, maybe as as something that's not quite omniscient in its. Um, in its in its approach, um, which we'll perhaps encounter later. Um, 
and, and I think uh, for me anyway, one of the, those features is just that it's a, at least these early chapters are um, so heavily mythologized, you know, um, from my point of view anyway, I don't sort of read the text and believe that this is literally taking place. Even in the story world, it's so sort of, um, as I said, it's so mythologized that it, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine such a world literally being, you know, ever being the case. It, it, it obtains its power, I think, out of its, in its symbolic and sort of mythological dimensions. And I don't know, that, that's at least how I think about it. <laughs> no, that's a good point. That's, that's actually a really good point. Um, um, yeah, so. yeah, that, that, that might, that might change the way that I read it going forward, which, you know, that's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I um, don't know. I mean, people would disagree with me. I think I'm in the minority. I think a lot of Tolkien fans would want to say, well, no, it's just, you know, it, it li- literally is, it, it is to be taken literally. It is to be taken as sort of a, you know, a true representation of, of, of events. Um, and even Tolkien himself later in life seems to have wanted to, you know, reshape the Silmarillion text so it became something more like that. Um, it's almost as though he sort of forgot about the historical, sorry, the mythological dimension of the text and because, you know, his his excuse was, well, that the elves who are sort of meant to be these these paragons of, of knowledge and, and et cetera would know, for example, that the sun and the moon had always, always existed in astronomical terms. They would not sort of generate a myth whereby um, the sun and moon are there's the fruits of, of these, you know, mythological trees, right? But, um, yeah, I, I think Tolkien himself probably missed the point there. <laughs> he, he missed the point of, in his old age. He, I think he missed the point of his youngest self. And, and you know, um, I think it's interesting when authors do that, but I think, I think they clearly do sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reminded of uh, when the the Canadian pianist uh, Glenn Gould, he was playing mm. some some Canadian composer's piece. I forget who. I don't want to say any name in case I'm wrong and I slander <laughs> someone. But uh, the, the composer was sitting in on the on the rehearsal, mm, mm. and uh, and he you know he sort of sat up during a break and was trying to give Glenn Gould all these notes. And uh, and Glenn Gould just said, "Oh, please sit down, Mister So and So. You have no idea how your piece goes." <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yeah, that's a great anecdote. So, mm, yeah, mm. Uh, I'm imagining you as uh, as Glenn Gould here. <laughs> I would never, I would never presume, but you know, I, I think in the context of discussing it, we, we can we can at least <laughs> hypothesize. Yeah, um, I think this yeah. is another good example, though, where you know it's good sometimes to take to, to realize that the author, not just talking, but any author. Although I think it's perhaps important in Tolkien's case, go through phases of creativity, and um, sometimes one can sort of really isolate the phases. Sometimes it's harder. You know, I think for Tolkien, it's it's um, you know it's evident that that the last part of his life was a phase. I would call it, you know, in some senses, a, a less creative phase because he's he's not trying to finish or rewrite the stories that he'd produced earlier in his life, sometimes very early, but he's trying to assimilate them into um, all sorts of other kinds of considerations, like like the considerations like that, which I just mentioned, that the notion that, you know, astronomical truth somehow had to be accommodated into the myth because some, um, 
you know, feature that the elves possess that, you know, all that these characters possess that is that supposedly, you know, that they would have knowledge of that. But of course, once you go down that path, I, I don't think any, I, I think very few features of the text would actually withstand scrutiny because of course, we're not talking about the real world. We're talking about a, a story world. So um, in that sense, yeah, I, I don't this see the is problem. going really far mm. afield. That's right. But yeah. have you have you ever read or know of um, I think it's called On Late Style by Edward Said. No, no. Um, but you you might be interested, uh, mm. and you know, I don't. As far as I know, he didn't write about Tolkien in this. But <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a book of like criticism of you know various artists, um, mm. including mm. Beethoven and and, Mo- and yep. Mozart and um. I forget who else. I think he may, may actually talk about Glenn Gould a little bit too, but um, the, the premise is basically, or his thesis is basically that, you know, there's, there's certain artists who by the sort of mm. creative magnitude of their early and middle work, um, they, they get to a phase in their late work where they just, they either find no feasible place to go, you know, further mm. than they have already gone, or they, they've already by their earlier work have wrapped themselves in, glorious contradiction and they have no way to sort of wrap up what they've gotten themselves wow. into. I think um, that describes so there's this whole phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So th- there's a whole phenomenon of like very great artists, some of who produce very dodgy late work and not to say that it's all bad. It's just sometimes it, it reaches these peaks and then other times you're like, he just seems confused here. And then mm. I wonder mm. if there is something there where you just, you, you know, uh, you, you get yourself into something that is as crazy as, you know, the entire sort of middle earth, legendarium and then you know you get to a point and you're like you know there's no human mind that can really mm. wrap that up neatly <laughs> yeah and i think <laughs> a perfect instantiation of that is is the nature of middle earth book that came out recently and i discussed that with um uh Reece, i discussed that recently on the, on the podcast of of course uh which you can listen to um but um you know i, I think i mean that book is is sort of now a little notorious because, you know, it's full of these sort of mathematical tables trying to sort of work out elvish lifespan in this sort of granular detail. This is not information that probably would have survived until, you know, um, the, the ravages of time. And, and yet it's, it's, though, it's as though Tolkien's almost forgot his earlier process of, of, of sort of writing his history as though from a great distance, right, um, in, in terms of time. Um and yeah, I I think it's an interesting book, but it's I think it's it's a monument to Tolkien's final creative period, which as you, which I think would would totally agree with with Said's late style idea, um, an artist who has sort of lost lost the creative impulse, or at least how to how to explain it. I mean, obviously there's still creativity there, there's still thinking, there's still analysis, but it's. You know, it, it's have sort of it's, gotten it, tangled up in their own. It's commentary on Aristotle. It, it's not. It, it's not new thinking. It's not responding to Aristotle, as it were, in a in a in a way that either updates or renews his ideas. It, it's a way that um, it, it's simply simply trying to um, trying to discern the minutia and 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 you know rule out contradictions where where these things are not actually important, where, where the contradictions and the minutiae sort of are beside the point. Um, and, you know, um, I know this is taking us off that 
uh, chapters one to five, but or one to four. But but I, but I think it's, it's it's important because in these chapters we're really talking about that the development of that myth, and I think it's this version of the myth which really, you know, was developed quite early and then, you know, it was fairly stable up until the writing of the Lord of the Rings and, and even beyond. It's really that version of the myth that I think is um, is the version that that is most creatively, most sort of mythologically, symbolically interesting. And that, that later thinking is, is, I think we can, I think we can uh, fairly say, you know, is, is a less interesting project. It, it is not, it, you know, it's not, not as creatively profound. Um, and I don't know, that's, yeah, that, that's my opinion anyway. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting I'm, I'm that, that some, some writers later have, uh, sorry, some commenters on Tolkien, you know, discussing the Silmarillion, which of course was published posthumously by his son. Um, you know, some have complained, well, this is not the, to- the Silmarillion that Tolkien would have written. Well, it's like, which period of Tolkien's life are you talking about, though? I mean, there's this sort of, I think in some critiques, there's this, um, there's this implicit idea that had Tolkien lived, you know, we, we, would, we would have eventually got a Silmarillion that would have been his Silmarillion, that, that would have been the, the canonical kind of Silmarillion. And for a lot of people, I think that is a Silmarillion that is much more sort of it's much more theologically orthodox. It, it's more, um, it incorporates more of his sort of later um, fiddling with regards to, as I've talked about it, with regards to minutia, incorporates sort of some of these dialogue, these later dialogues that are included in the history of Middle-earth books, which all invariably are much more sort of theologically than mythologically inspired. Again, you know, another theme in, in Tolkien's later work was trying to square religious faith with with the work but i think all of that would have lost this mythological or at least it would have diluted that mythological quality um which i think would have been a you know a creatively bankrupt thing for him to have done and, and had he lived long enough to actually uh, release a film really and you know at least if he'd remained in that phase i think it would have been a, a less creatively a, a le- less interesting than the one we've got which is r- really reflects the moment where it was when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, which I think is appropriate Silmarillion to have, um, because that's the most powerful instantiation of, of his creative, you know, of his creativity in in that book. And, and so I think it's appropriate to have the Silmarillion of, of that phase, and not a later phase where, yes, it, it might have been had he lived a bit longer, maybe he would have published it, but I think it would have been a less profound work, you know, going off what we've seen in, in the nature of Middle Earth, for example. Hmm. Sorry, rant that's over. A, no, no, that, that, that's a very that's a very interesting point. I, I find that absolutely fascinating that you that you um, think that. Mm. I'm inclined to agree, though. I don't know enough to have an opinion, but you know, um, based on your interpretation of what's going on, um, I'm on your side. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were there any other? No, no, no. I mean, we've yeah, we've we've got these five chapters. Um, and and we've sort of gone over the the very high. Um, the plot at a sort of high level, but of course we have the creation of the dwarves in this story of Ale and Yuvana, and then of course we have the meeting of the sort of demigod Melian um, with with Thingol, who's one of the elves, who becomes the king of the elves, and, and this is really setting up later story, of course. But um, I, I guess that so yeah. Wait, sorry, but before we get too far mm. ahead, um, I, I had a I had a 
question, which is possibly stupid no, uh, yeah, about yeah. the dwarves. Yeah. Um, so, well, just a, a, a comment. I, I found it, you know, quite interesting that, um, you know, it just seems to be, uh, I, I was sort of reading it and, and, and kind of thinking that it's a, it's, it's a real hodgepodge of, um, <laughs> of, uh, of, of myths, you know, like, uh, how, how, how do you say it? Is it Aule? Aule? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you say it. Yeah. Um, he, he seems to be, you know, a, a, like a, he seems to be a vaguely Promethean figure. And then, mm-hmm. but then there's also a sort of, um, uh, a sort of Abraham, uh, <laughs> Isaac moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but the, <laughs> the, uh, the thing with, um, the, 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 the fact that, that he, he, he made the dwarves before, um, before the, the men and the elves were, uh, were awoken. Mm, mm. Um, but then, but then, um, you know, um, Luvatar wants, he, he basically sort of, you know, puts them on hold until his firstborn are, are, <laughs> mm. are uh, awoken and blah, blah, blah. Um, I was just wondering, like, obviously it's like that because Token wanted it to be like that, but I was just wondering, like, what you think of that and where that places the dwarfs, like, structurally, um, in relation to the other hmm. species, races, whatever the, the thing is. It just seems like a weird <laughs> detail that he obviously had to have really thought about too, because, mm. you know, it's not, it's not accidental, but I just couldn't place what he may have been thinking. Well, um, I think a lot of people about that think about this in theological terms, this chapter, they think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's sort of, and in some sense, I think this chapter, this Ale and Yavanna, the creation of the dwarves chapter is in some sense, the most biblically, it's it's the closest to, to sort of biblical um, themes. I, I think you have a sort of a, a rather overbearing God figure who's sort of in who, in who you know, creativity is instantiated and, and doesn't share it around. Um, uh, you know, apart from sort of at the last moment you mentioned the, the comparison to Isaac, um, that story in the Bible, Abraham and Isaac story, um, which is an interesting one. And you know, a lot of people think about it that way. Again, I, I think I, th- I think about it in sort of metatextual way, um, as I increasingly do reading this. And again, it's sort of one element that I feel reveals this sort of bias of the text, which is from this elvish point of view. I suspect if you ask the dwarves, they would not tell the story because, of course, the story. Because of course, what does the story do? It, it really does place the dwarves in a kind of if not well not not subservient but but they're a kind of secondary imperfect um product right um yeah they're the second born the, well of literally yeah the lesser being. yeah yeah they're not thought of by the original god they're sort of so even though it's it's said that the dwarves sort of um they revere or, or worship let me not worship but but they revere Aule. so obviously he's a sort of important figure but and he is a smith that obviously so no doubt the dwarves have some story where they're created by by Ale, but um, but I, I suspect it it would be a bit different. Um, we don't really have a dwarvish story of dwarvish origins. Um, I don't think that there is something said in the appendices. I think of the Lord of the Rings, um, but I can't can't remember that exactly right now. But um, I suspect it it wouldn't have the same kind of valence as this. So you know. Again, it comes back to this issue. Is this the sort of canonical story of the dwarves' origin, you know? <laughs> or do we take it, again, as a kind of, you know, as a kind of mythological, theological reflection on on the dwarves from the point of view of the elves? 
you know, it, it sort of, it, 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 although it's it's not unkind to the dwarves, it, it does have the effect of sort of, again, um, placing them in a kind of, in a position which is uh, perhaps not quite as elevated. Uh, you know, I don't know of any culture who, who would, you know, that, that would necessarily um, agree to a story like that. So, um, you know, I tend to think that, yeah, th- this is another instance where one can read it in a couple of ways as a kind of just, you know, on the, on the surface as, as, a, as an account of, of what happened or within the story world even as a kind of one version of the, of the story. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. <laughs> no, that, 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 once again, you've, you've, uh, you've hit the bullseye. Thank you. You've totally sold me <laughs> on, on that. Um, it, that kind of reminds me of, you know, the, 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 um, the way that the Hindu caste system is often portrayed, mm, mm, you know, mm. with, um, you know, you'll see these depictions where the, the Brahmins, like the, the priestly mm-hmm. class, um, which are the sort of, um, quote unquote, um, upper caste figures, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put themselves in the sort of head area mm-hmm. of the, of the, of the sort of God, mm-hmm. you know, godlike um, instanti- instantiation of like, you know, the, the entire world's energy. And then, you know, as the, as a you know the cast quote get lower and lower you know you'll you'll find people who are the the arms and then you know, <laughs> the, the, mm. eventually like the, the, the feet and, and and i always wonder like oh it's very convenient that the priests put themselves on the heads i'm not sure that mm. the people uh i'm not sure that the uh the foot people would put themselves there mm. yeah and you can <laughs> always make excuses right you can always say well the foot people the feet are necessary for walking there they're just as important as the head just you know which i'm sure yeah. they do make those kind of excuses um but that's exactly what they mm, say but i find mm. it very convenient that it's the head people yeah. saying that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so exactly so um you know i'm sure the you know the elves would say well you know the, the but but iluvatar that this god figure you know eventually you know, allows them to exist, gives them life. So they're just as much children of, as elves or men. They're just, you know, they just happen to have been devised by, by Aule. But, but of course, there's, there's still a kind of sense of, well, yeah, that's true. It's kind of, it's, it's a convenient, um, you know, it's a convenient element which allows for the story to, or allows for a bit of plausible deniability um, on the part of the elves. We're not really putting the dwarves down, but we kind of are. Um, and now, you know, maybe this is too a cynical what uh, a way to approach this text and you know as i said people mostly read this in a kind of theological way um you know it's, it's saying something about tolkien's belief about god or you know the, the role of god in this universe the theology of the universe etc and yes it is but you know i i don't know um but if we're actually going to take this seriously as a kind of pseudo-historical text we can't just take it face value what it says i think anyway and i think a lot of scholarship on the silmarillion is starting to say the same thing that's fascinating mm. but sorry i feel like i've ranted yeah. so much in this <laughs> no no i mean i'm 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 loving this i think i think you're you're making some really interesting points that i you know i was not considering so where to next mm. sorry that was no that. no no that's fine i mean yeah so i think that's that you know <laughs> that, that's interesting and, and another point in this chapter at the end where sort of Ale and yuvana his, his spouse have a bit of a chat about these sort of categories of living things and and, and of course um you know this is a fairly famous debate within some really inefficient anyway um if, if no one else but um <laughs> but you know another reason i call this the most biblical chapter is because there is this notion put here that um, um that the earth the, the plants and the 
the animals of the earth are sort of put there for the children of Iluvatar for their use. They will, you know, it's that very sort of biblical idea of dominion, dominionism. Um, now this, you know, if you read the Lord of the Rings, I, I, I don't think that's the idea you get. I don't, I don't think it. So again, we're, we're given a sort of very a theological kind of idea that in other parts of Tolkien's fiction finds challenge or, or finds, um, you know, is complicated, but by the narrative. And I think we see this again and again in, in the Silmarillion, and we'll come back to this, where there are certain ideas, certain mythological or theological ideas, which elsewhere, you know, either are contradicted or, or don't quite play out in the way that you might have thought. And I think a lot of readers just take this as, oh, well, you know, um, the Silmarillion is basically the Bible of Middle-earth, and so we just we sort of trust what it says. Again, I, th- I think that's not what Tolkien is doing. I think he's we have to take it seriously as a kind of text in the story world. And if we do that, we can't just take it at face value. So that's why I think that, um, well, yes, these ideas like the idea of dominionism or, you know, is, is a kind of biblical idea. And no doubt Tolkien was interested in that. But clearly, if one reads The Lord of the Rings, that's not the, he's not only interested in, in just putting that idea across. He's interested in thinking about that idea as it would play out in a story or, you know, um, and, and so he's not interested in just, I think, you know, giving the reader sort of, theological precepts about um, how the world works within his story world or in the real world. And if it seems like he's doing that in the Silmarillion, I think that's, well, frankly, I think that's because people are reading it wrong. (laughs) I think that's, I think they're reading it as a kind of window into the world, into this story world, as they call it. Um, Not just me, but you know, that, that sort of phrase is used of, of, of these, these worlds within, within the, the space of a novel or a book or, or a creative, you know, endeavor. But yeah, I don't know. I, I know I keep coming back to that, but I think these first few chapters really, yeah. So, so essentially, you're you're basically just to sort of mm. get it clear in my own head. Mm. Um, you're saying that there's basically one one camp that um, that would essentially read the the sort of, for lack of a better word, the canon of mm. like Middle Earth stories as you know, the Lord of the Rings and and like the Hobbit maybe. And then the rest is basically um, is told from some sort of quasi like, you know, extra textual, like, um, like you said, like a window into the text, mm. but, but you're, but you're, you're, you're placing, you're, you're placing the Silmarillion sort of within, um, within the actual, um, the text itself. Right. Is, is that, is that what I'm getting? Kind of, well, yes. I, I think it's a text within the story world. I, you know, it sort of more or less explicitly is um, because it's meant to be a translation of, of well, Tolkien changed his mind, but essentially a translation of law, right, of elvish law. But looking back from some time in the, as it were, the far imagined future, looking back at these events. Um, and my point is only that, any text we would do that in the real world, we, we would assume that, um, or we would not assume, I think, you know, if we're diligent readers, we would not assume that such a text was a window into sort of a universal vision of the past, but is, is sort of um, circumscribed in various ways. I just think we have to read this text in the same way. Um, and there's certain sure, kinds of sure. evidence that, Tolkien himself thought that, um, and whether he thought that or not is, is sort of beside the point. It's certainly written in that way. I mean, as I've said before, I, I think you know quite a few scholars have identified certain features of bias, certain features of uncertainty in the text, 
you know, where, and, and certainly Christopher Tolkien himself notes in his introduction that the text is, is written again from that sort of point of view of, of, of a far future, um, looking back at a, at a deep past. Um, and so, you know, um, I think what's more interesting than, than looking at the Silmarillion as, as a kind of just unproblematic window into this world is thinking about it as a feature of the story world itself, you know, um, and, and therefore, um, you know, as, as a kind of a window perhaps also into um, not so much the exact events, but into the, um, into the ways that the people in the story kind of understand their own history, I suppose. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sold on that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah. Again, I think a lot of people would disagree. To, to but, me, I mean, mm. if, whether that's right or wrong or, or whatever, to me, that, that does sound like the more interesting mm. version. Of it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean, as as like a as a lit as a literary exercise, you know, that, that yeah. is certainly the more um, the more interesting. That's yeah. certainly the more yeah. interesting one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you know, I know we've taken a sort of a very sort of high position on these chapters, but that's because these are you know fairly short chapters, and they're really developing a kind of mythological um, perspective, I, I think, um, on, on the past. And we see that, of course, in, in for example, if you read Roman history, the more in the past you go, the more mythological and sort of weird it gets. Um, and we see the same thing in the Silmarillion. It starts in a kind of theologico-religious manner. We transition to myth, myth, and then we transition into something more approximating history with greater detail, etc. And we see that, of course, culminate in the Lord of the Rings and other texts which present the Third Age as the most historically drawn of the ages. Um, and so in that sense, the whole endeavour reflects the development of not only history in, in a sense, but historiography um, in the real world, which is interesting. And so I think that's that how we need to approach Tolkien's text. Um, yeah. And, and Tolkien was a, was he a historian by trade? Well, he was a philologist, but yes, I mean, he was of course ah. working in a, in an area that was more or less adjacent to, to history, the history of languages um, mm. in part. So yeah, absolutely. Intimately familiar with, yeah. with, with ancient um, historical writing and other kinds of things like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I don't, have, I don't have much to add to that. That would be interesting, but um, yeah, no, I, I think that's very interesting. So, you know, um, we've covered a whole lot of ground, actually, or I have. I'm sorry if I have. <laughs> like, I've just dumped. Yeah, I mean, you you clearly have uh, have got a lot of interesting things to say on this. But, so, um, yeah, I'm happy to just um, <laughs> sit back and watch the fireworks. <laughs> But yeah, next time I think, you know, we'll start to get into the elves and, and some of their political allegiances and alliances and differences um, when they come back to, to Valinor um, and they settle in Eldemar, Elvenholm, which is a slightly ironic name, of course, because their home is actually Middle-earth. Um, <laughs> yeah. And when they return to Middle-earth, they're called exiles, but they're, re- they're really double exile. It, it, it gets complicated. Um <laughs> But, but that's part of the interest of it, I think. I think so. So we'll really start to get into that, and that's where we'll begin to see something of that historicizing style, um, as opposed to mythological. So you know, next time we might do at least chapter five um, and maybe Feanor as well. Um, sure. But um, yeah, was there anything? I, I guess 
yeah, anything else to add? I feel like I've said enough. Well, I shouldn't say anymore. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, was there something about, about theodicy specifically that you want to bring up? or um, I think I've sort of covered it. I, I was just going to mention that, you know, yeah, you know, there was this question of um, whether or not the idea of this primal light, this primal beauty, and even the word, I've mentioned the word symmetry, which is used explicitly in the text. Someone gets this image of this sort of land of changeless symmetry. It's almost like a ge- geometrical thing, geometrical space, a space of perfect geometry, I should say. Um, and then that's broken, right, by Melkor. And then we sort of have time. Time itself sort of is a, is a kind of wrecker. And um, so the question is, you know, d- does that contradict with this theodicy, this notion that's given in the Aina Lindale, the sort of creation myth, and, and is sort of repeated in a couple of places in these earlier chapters, that to introduce discord and disharmony is, is sort of somehow conducive to even greater beauty, um, that somehow beauty, um, you know, is instantiated not, not, not only in sort of geometrical perfection, but somehow in, in, in sort of disunity, you know, in, in the brokenness, um, which, which is, I call it theodicy because it's sort of, it is really, it is, I guess, the explanation that's given in the Aina Lindale for, you know, why is there bad? Why is there evil? But that's, that's, that's the tech that that's the answer that that text gives to the, the problem of evil. It's that, well, yes, evil is, it's bad. We don't deny that, but you know, it's also kind of better that it exists because it sort of, you know, um, it, it leads to even greater things. Now, personally, I find this a fairly silly theodicy. It's, it's not convincing as a as an answer, but um, you know, it is a a um, you know, it, it's a kind. It's the kind of explanation that you know, various various, um, especially I, I guess, especially in, in Christian contexts, but but others as well people ha- ha- sort of give to that 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 um that question and and in some of these early chapters Tolkien attempts to kind of mythologize that i think i think i think later on in the text he more or less gives up on that idea i, I don't think i don't think that idea is sort of um actually you know again a lot of people will disagree with me but i don't think that idea is a really central one to understanding Tolkien's text i think it's in there because it's a, you know it, it's a it's kind of easy theodicy and you know, like 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 all authors dealing with sort of quasi-Christian myth- mythological ideas um, and, and um, texts, you know, he has to give one at least. But um, but I don't think it really informs the um, the the legendarium, particularly I mean, at least not as much as some people think. But yeah, that that's what I sort of meant by that. Yeah. I wonder if there's anything there that that um, sort of ties into what you were saying about um, the, the 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 sort of place of the of the Silmarillion, you know, as a as a sort of myth within the text. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, I, I too think that that it's kind of a, a, a silly idea, and I think it's it's silly when people sort of put forth ideas like this in the real world. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. real real world. Um, <laughs> but um, I wonder if if uh, if that too we can we can sort of read as um, something that is 
that is said in the way that 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 it's said in, in the real world as like a as a myth to just you know as a myth slash coping mechanism you know um mm. to, to deal with entropy you know it's like i wonder how much um I don't, know, I don't know if that's making any sense, but mm, yeah, um, yeah. like I, I wonder how much of this is supposed to be taken at face value and how much of it is supposed to be sort of read as um, a sort of elvish coping mechanism because, you know, <laughs> it's the, elvish cope. The, um, <laughs> yeah, it's elvish cope. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, because yeah, I think to be, to be, to be truly mm-hmm. honest, I, I, I'm not sure that, that any argument about, um, you know, the introduction of, you know, discord to enhance beauty. I'm not sure that, that, that really would fly in a, in any real sense, you know, just uh, philosophically. So I don't know what you, what you, what you think yeah, about that. I mean, I think it's dangerous to take Tolkien's ideas here, not dangerous, but misguided say, to take Tolkien's idea here as, as sort of, you know, Tolkien's seriously thinking about theology and sort of, I mean, yes, on one level he is, but again, we have to come back to the, the status of this. It's a literary object, this text. It's not a theological discourse. And as much as Tolkien may have had theological sentiments and ideas, I don't think he always sticks with them. I think sometimes they're contradicted in the text, even within the Silmarillion itself. Um, you know, like any good novelist, I don't think Tolkien's ideas are sort of fully formed and sort of given thesis-like detail uh, or, or sort of set out in thesis-like detail in these literary texts. I don't think that's what literature is about. If I think it's sort of the opposite of philosophy and theology in that sense. It's about deconstructing or, or perhaps not deconstructing, but, but it's about allowing sort of um, unresolvable ideas and, and sentiments and feelings to, to coexist. And I think even though this text does have these mythological slash theological ideas, um, for example, the Odyssey that we've been talking about, I think that they, as I said, they um, they are not always given um, – you know, full consideration in the, in the narrative, for example, I think there's sort of, if they're not contradicted, they're sort of, you know, shunted to the side, right? Um, you know, I've made the argument before that, I, you know, I think, for example, the uh, the Children of Hurin, that novel particularly um, sort of undermines the whole theodicy that, that is given in the Silmarillion. Um, it undermines it as a convincing... Um, at least as a convincing kind of uh, idea, um, and, and not only that, but but also other, um, you know, other other texts as well in, in Tolkien's fiction, um, and even the Lord of the Rings, I think, has a has a different message. I, I don't think the message of the Lord of the Rings is is well, you know, evil is good is actually kind of good um, because it leads to it leads to beautiful things in the end. Um, or conflict or discord or whatever is actually kind of preferable to, you know, perfect harmony. I think the mythological idea at the centre of that theodicy is that, you know, as we see in these first chapters, again, in that sort of more mythological sense, is that discord and there is a certain value in the features of the world that are... um, that are discordant, that are, you know, that, that betray a symmetry, you know, symmetries can be, can be, um, well, by their nature, if you, if you look at a, you know, if you look at a crystal or something that they can be, um, repetitive, they can, 
sort of get boring you know what what we often find interesting in nature is, is you know are those parts of it which which don't um which are sort of in some sense imperfect um you know if we're thinking about like the visual kind of um features um of, of nature like in a in a um in a crystal or, so, or something um so I, don't, I think that's the mythological idea that's kind of interesting in that theodicy but i don't think it, as a as a kind of explanation of like i don't know you know god's intentions I, you know obviously I, I don't think it works and it, indeed you know s- some people i heard recently have made the point that if you if you if you really try and seriously push that um that idea as an explanation of god's purposes one, one loses all capacity for moral evaluation because one never knows when a good or a bad act is actually conducing to some later historical outcome which which is only available to god's mind but not to to one's own. So how how does one make moral judgments in in such a in such a universe? Um, so I think the whole thing is is impossible. But um, but I think it's you know what people often miss is it's the mythological element in that idea that's interesting. I think um, a, a real quick analogy. Yeah. I mean, I think there is there's something interesting about um, about you know 17th and and really like early 18th century music. Mm. Um, you know, roughly like the you know the, the baroque era which is um what, what i sort of gravitate to the most and um you know i think people think that maybe someone like someone like bach wrote very sort of organized and symmetrical <laughs> music mm. but but actually if you really study it it's it's really not it's not it's, it's very organized but it's ultimately kind of wandering right it's the, the harmonies don't mm. really they're not really balanced in in exactly the, the way that you know later on mm. you would see from Mozart or Haydn mm. um, so th- there's something there's something there was a, a break it seems to me around the around the enlightenment in even in music mm. right? um, where um, some of the sort of the the idea that music was a sort of expression of the the mysteries of god's mind or something like that was maybe taken away a little bit and more it was it more became a sort of logical enterprise mm, mm. Um, and that's when you really start to see symmetrical music cropping up mm. you know like the, the sort of perfectly architecture phrases of mozart if you, <laughs> if you really listen to bach um you know he just he'll start on a, on a sort of chromatic wandering and then he'll just end up somewhere and mm. um it doesn't really. It sort of defies traditional analyses mm. in an interesting way. Um, the whole, the whole move, the whole, message, <laughs> the whole message of uh, Amadeus is that we should actually have supported Salieri all along, or that Salieri actually <laughs> yeah. should have got the the emperor's uh, imprimatur all along. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about Salieri's music. Maybe, maybe it was terrible. But um, <laughs> no, no, he was he was great there. And by, by all accounts, for for what it's worth, um, mm. you know, Salieri and Mozart were were actually amicable colleagues. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I've heard that. Yeah. I've I mean, the movie is wonderful, of course, but it, it does it yeah. does ham up. Yeah. Although Mozart was meant to be quite a yeah. ham artist, right? Like he's quite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think he he definitely was a yeah uh, yeah a professional at um, loving people the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, ma- many of whom were not his wife, I should add. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> <more> funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I the, the movie that. touches on that too, doesn't it? I, 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 I seem to remember. Yeah, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but great, great film. Um, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I, I think I think that's good. Um, was there anything final, final to add? I mean, as I said before, I, I keep talking, so I don't want to linger too long. But no, no. 
Um, I think that's it from from me. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for what it's worth, I found what you said here like totally um, fa- fascinating mm. and, and sort of enlightening. And I'm glad that we had this mm. conversation early on because it's going to affect yeah, the way that yeah. I read and the rest of it. Yeah. Because I think you know, I, I think I read other Middle Earth texts mm. um, in a more sort of literary way just by my nature, but mm. I think without even thinking, I, I sort of tapped into a more theological reading with the Silmarillion without it being, without it being very conscious. I mm. think I just sort of, I just kind of approached it like that because that's just how I think mm. I was supposed to approach it. Mm. And so, it certainly does invite um, that. I mean, I'm not saying that one cannot read it that way. I, I just think that, um, or one shouldn't, I'm not saying. No, but it's more interesting. I, I just think we have to, we have to remember <laughs> that it is on some level literary project and it's, um, trying to do certain things. And one can forget that because I think it doesn't have a framing device, which Tolkien had originally written. Um, that was left out because, uh, well, for complex reasons, but and probably ultimately for the best. But um, but certainly it is it is an artifact of, of the story world, and it's explicitly thought to have been so by Tolkien himself. Um, so it's, it's not simply a book of – it's not simply a and d guide, you know, to the world. It's, it's not a law book. Um yeah, which is meant to be taken sort of face value, you know. Um, I think that makes it much more interesting. So yeah, it, it does. Yeah, and um, so you know, for for listeners also, I just want to say um, in this 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 series, obviously, um, we are just assuming that you know people come to this either having recently read the the text or or having um, you know a sense of, a sense of what it what it says. Um, we're not really doing recaps or, or things like that um, because we're, we're just assuming people. People know, you know, what we're talking about. So, just have that, have that, um, bear that in mind. Yeah. But um, for, the, for the people who who listen to an hour of us yeah, talking, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I should have said without, that at the start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm idea. sure I said that in the first episode. I don't know, but yeah. Um, but yeah. No, thank you. Um, I, I just, I just like the of a, of a listener, you know, making it an hour in, and, and they're like, ah, oh, damn, I thought they were going to. I know. A, I, know. I, sh- I should have, I should have said that at the start, but I guess it's just more of a. Um, more of a you know no, general point. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Um, so I think I think that yeah, that'll that brings us to a close with that one. Um, and yeah, next time we'll get into the elves. Um, and I know we we didn't really talk about the elves here, um, but we will talk about them next time. Um, and and perhaps we'll go back a little bit as well. Talk about. Elway and um, um, Thingol and Melian a little bit too, but but uh, you know. um, So, at any case, we're up to chapter five, and the elves have reached Valinor, the sort of home away from home, at least for a while, and um, we'll take it up from there. So, thanks everyone, and we'll see you then.